do things just a, a tad bit differently uh, tonight than what I normally do in, in these situations. Um, thought that uh, you might be interested in, as, a, as a family, we talked about uh, the five o'clock hour, uh, some things uh, pertaining to me, to my family, and what we would like to do and accomplish here if, if we were to come here to serve as your next minister. Uh, I thought you might enjoy uh, listening to my to my associate. Uh, the congregation a couple of years ago at Somerville began participating in the the Lads the Leaders program, and uh, Ivan got involved in that, and um, and he he did he did very well did very well last year, and he managed this year to to come home with a second in song leading. And I was very, very proud of that. But uh, he's going to, to bring us a lesson tonight, and uh, I, I feel like you'll appreciate the things that he has to say from the, from the Word of God. In the fall of 2014, at the beginning of the college football season, Nick Saban, head football coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, had a difficult decision to make, who to start at quarterback. Coming out of the job, there was no clear front runner for the job. Eventually, to the surprise of everyone, he stuck on a three-year backup, Blake Sims. Prior to the beginning of the season, many questioned his ability to even compete for the job, much less win the starting nod. Even with Saban's vote of confidence, the pundits and naysayers were not convinced. They predicted that Saban would waste no time in benching Sims in favor of Jake Coker if Sims failed to impress, got off to a slow start, or performed at a subpar level. They were wrong. Yes, Sims did get off to a slow start. His first few outings were less than impressive. He made a lot of mistakes, but Coach Saban's faith in him never faltered. He never gave up on him. He never benched him with another quarterback, even though at times it would have been tempting to do so. He started the season with Sims and ended the season with Sims. He stuck through Sims through the good times and the bad times. Together, Sims and Saban would end the season as SEC champions, compiling a 12-2 record by sticking together. In a biblical sense, this is God's plan and desire for me. To one day make a commitment, a singular choice in terms of a lifelong mate. Beginning in Genesis 2.21, the Bible recorded that, And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs thereof and closed the flesh thereof. And the rib which the Lord had taken from man made he a woman, and brought the, the woman unto the man. And Adam said, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Potentially, as a future husband, God will for me is to be a man of character and commitment, to give my pledge to one woman, to be faithful to her for, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, until death do us part. Lamech, Genesis 4.19, was the first individual that we know of to to violate God's original and divine plan, that being one woman for one man for one lifetime, saving for the call of fornication or the death of one spouse. 
Here in Genesis 4.19, it records that Lamech took upon him two wives. I think here it is interesting to note that two chapters later, by the time God got ready to start over with the world and destroy it with a flood because of man's wickedness, he started over again with the same principle. One man, one woman, one husband, one wife. Genesis 7.7 7 records that, And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife's, and his son's wife with him into the ark. Verse 13 says, The three wives of his three sons, one wife for each of his three sons, entered into the ark. As we look at the word of God, the violation of this principle has always led to chaos and confusion, heartache and heartbreak. Sarah and Hagar, the wives of Abraham, became bitter rivals. Rachel and Leah spent their whole lives competing for Jacob's affection. Hannah, before God blessed her with Samuel, cruelly suffered ridicule and persecution at the hands of Peninnah, the second of Elkanah's wives. And to think, how much better off would have David been? How much off would have children have been had he remained faithful to his wife Abigail? A painful and distressing subject, one that should be dealt with kindness and compassion, is the subject of divorce. Once again, as Jesus addressed the subject, we see God's original desire or blueprint for marriage and the home restated and set forth in the New Testament. In Matthew 19, 4-6, Jesus inquired of the Pharisees, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? What, what therefore God has joined, let not man put asunder. While this is God's desire for husbands and wives to be faithfully committed to one another and their relationships never to be put asunder, He does make one exception and one exception only, that being for the call of fornication found in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. In conclusions, Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wife even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ remained faithful to his bride, the church. He is not unfaithful to it. He will never leave it nor forsake it. God expects me to be like Christ, to love my wife as Christ loved the church, to be faithful to her, to cleave unto death to us part, for one man, for one woman, for one lifetime. I haven't started preaching when he was three years old. He would get to church about 20 till, and the man who controlled the, the mic, he would pull it down, all the way down, so he could pick up Ivan. And Ivan would get up about 20 till, and, and we would hear sermons on Woody, We'd hear sermons on Buzz, and we'd hear sermons on Thomas the Train, and he'd get Peter and John thrown in there from time to time, and he'd preach back and forth, and, and back and forth, and he'd be letting us have it, and uh, he, he had, he had he was started kindergarten too, though about four years, and you know, the rules in kindergarten, you know, you come in, and you sit down, and you take your seat, and he was preaching back and forth, and he, Brother Merle came in, and he said, Merle, you come in and you sit down on your bottom right now. And 
he had preached back and forth, and then he then he stopped, and you couldn't see him. He looked around here, and you heard a little voice said, "Oh, it sure is a mess under here." <laughs> Like it is under a lot of these podiums where they just throw everything. But very, very proud of him. What I want to do again, as I said, we're going to do things a little bit different. Uh, we, we, you've heard me in the, the venue of a, a Sunday school lesson as we looked at four points as to why I believe that John 3.16 is the greatest text in all the, the Word of God. Actually, there are seven things from that text. Uh, why I believe it's the greatest text in all the Word of God, but we only had had time for four. Then we looked this morning at, at a lesson on, on faith. Now, what, what I would like to do is I would like to share something with you that I've been doing the last five or six months, is I want to share with you some Wednesday night devotionals, which are, are serving as the basis of a devotional book that I, I'm putting together. Uh, as Brother Ron uh, mentioned this morning, I have some advanced degrees and uh, worked hard on those and and figured I, I needed to, to do that if I was going to preach along with that history degree. And it served me, me very well, the, the study in history. I've never had to buy an illustration book in my life because so history has provided me with those illustrations and when I, when I laid aside with, with your master's degree programs you usually have to write a 20 to 25 page paper and and I give credit to Lisa for having to type a lot of those back before you know the the computer came along and the word processors and but having to hand write those things and then correct them before I gave them to Lisa I said I'll never write again but I have decided that I do want to bring together a marriage of the things that I've learned historically with my love for the Word of God. And these have to do with my love of history and my love of naval history. And I've, the title of this work is taken from Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 19. Uh, will your anchor hold, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. And so I'm thinking about entitling the book, Will Your Anchor Hold? And so these are, are three lessons, uh, two or three Wednesday night devotionals that I'm going to put together as one sermon. Uh, one is somewhat unrelated to the other two. Uh, the other two, one was preached, I delivered it on a Wednesday night, and then six weeks later I delivered the third one. But yet, for purposes for what we want to do tonight, I want to put the two together because they go hand in hand, one demonstrating what disappoints God, and then the other demonstrating what God expects of us as children of God. Be turning in your Bibles, first of all, to John chapter 7, John chapter 7, and, and verse number, number 24. Number 24. Alexander Ball, he served under Sir George Rodney uh, as a young midshipman at the Battle of 
the battle of the saints is where he got his start. And it was at that time he, he met the world's greatest naval commander, destined to become the world's greatest naval hero and commander, a, a man by the name of Horatio Nelson, who went on to win the most decisive naval battle in all of human history, that of the Battle of Trafalgar, a man by the name of Horatio Nelson. And Alexander Ball and Nelson, they made their way up through the ranks together as, as midshipmen and, and then as first lieutenants. And Horatio Nelson, his first impression uh, of Alexander Paul was, was somewhat, well, it was quite a bit negative as he referred to Alexander Ball as a great coxcomb. And I wondered what on earth that was, and I looked it up in an old English dictionary, and that meant someone who is vain, someone who is pretentious, someone who comes across as being arrogant or, or, or conceited, someone who comes across as being somewhat of a dandy or someone who is just a little too prim, or maybe unduly devoted to, to style. And, and that was the impression, the opinion that he held of Alexander Ball for 16, 16 years. He held that impression of Alexander Ball. And, and then, then in 1798, they were both in a storm off of Cape Finestri, and... Horatio Nelson's ship, the Vanguard, was about to go down till Alexander Ball strapped his ship to it and he managed to bring it safely into harbor in Sardinia. And Nelson was demanding the whole time, you know, cut loose, cut loose from me. There's no need in my ship taking your ship down. But Alexander Ball, he would not do it. And from that time forward, they begin to get to know. They begin this relationship. And Ball went on to serve under, that was in May of 1798. And then Ball began to serve under, under Horatio Nelson at the Battle of the Nile where he defeated Napoleon's fleet there at the mouth of the Nile River, Abakur Bay, and Ball became one of the original band of brothers. That expression is taken from Shakespeare's play, Henry V, and it's been popularized. I think there's a television series called Band of Brothers based on the experiences of some Vietnam veterans. And, and so here again... From May to August of 1798, they're spending more and more time together as brother officers. They're working together. They're spending time together. They're dining together. They're fighting together. They're making sacrifices together. And then by June the 4th of 1801, now for 16 years, Nelson had thought of this man as a great coxcomb, someone who was arrogant and someone who, who was conceited. But in three years' time, or, or five years' time, notice this letter, notice the change in Nelson's attitude as he writes to Ball, who's serving in the Baltic, my dear, invaluable friend, believe my heart entertains the very warmest affection for you. 
That's very Victorian language. My invaluable friend, my heart entertains the warmest of affection for you. Again he writes, Believe me, at all times and places, I am forever your sincere, affectionate, and faithful friend. What had happened? He had gotten to know him. John chapter 7 and verse 24 says, Judge not just because a man enjoys... Alexander Campbell was very concerned about his appearance. Now, David Lipscomb didn't, didn't care at all. Was very was described as being somewhat slovenly in his appearance. Well, does that mean that he was a slob and slothful? And a, and a, no, 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 it just, appearance wasn't important to him. Was Alexander Campbell or Thomas Campbell, was he, was he pretentious and, and conceited? No. He just meant that looking, you know, be, looking, having, being properly attired was important to him. Didn't mean he, he was conceited or, or, or stuck up. You see, he had made, Jesus says, judge not according to the appearance, but judge a righteous judgment. Now, are we to make judgments? Absolutely. I don't know. Brother Peter talks about the words of Paul. He says, boy, people take the words of Paul and they twist them and they take them out of context and they make them say what they want them to say. I think he uses the word rest, which means to twist. But, uh, I mean, if Peter thought that People were taking Paul's word and, and, and jerking them out of context. Boy, what would Peter think about what people do today with what Jesus says in Matthew 7 and verse 1? Judge not that you be not judged. Man, that, that's the most maligned passage of Scripture in, in, in the world today, at, at least uh, in, in the contemporary world in which we live. But we are not to judge, you know, having a beam in our eye we're not to judge hypocritically. But then Jesus does go ahead and tell us there are false prophets in the world. You've got to look out for them. You have to exercise judgment. But the main point here is that we need to be careful. We can be cutting ourselves off from some wonderful close friendships because we've made these, we've allowed first impressions to to undermine, to taint our our opinions of people. Interesting. Turn turn to Acts chapter two and in verse number forty two. Of course, we have here on the day of Pentecost. We have people who, who they realized they had crucified the Son of God. They said, "Men and brethren, what shall we do?" Peter told them what to do. He told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. They that gladly received His word were baptized. And then verse 47, they, and the Lord added into the church daily such as were being saved. But then go back to verse 42. It says, And they continued steadfastly, not slipshoddily, not haphazardly, but they continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in, in prayers. You know what? A 
apostles' doctrine. Man, I've seen books on apostles' doctrine. Amen. And but all the word doctrine means is teaching. Acts two forty two is teaching. You know, you, you've got folk. You know, we need to be instant in prayer. Have you ever met the old cowboys in the church? I got cowboys. I had cowboys at Livingston. I had cowboys at Somerville. I've had cowboys everywhere. Cowboys are, are folks. You don't have cowboys here, I'm sure. Cowboys come riding in. At 929, uh, you know, the, the iconic cowboy comes in and he's remote and he's mysterious and he's dark and, and he's to himself and he's mysterious and all the women think, oh, he's mysterious and wonder what he's like. You know, and he comes in and he does his thing and then, you know, as soon as church is over, he gets back on his horse and he's Gone. And we don't see him again. He rides back out on the range. And he's gone. And we see him again come Sunday morning, 9.29. You know, at 10.30, oh, you know, he's gone again. Or at 11.30, he's gone again. And we don't see him. He's back out on the range. Right? Y'all got cowboys here? Y'all don't have we got people like that. But you know, this, the Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. This friendship between Nelson and Ball would have never developed without fellowship, right? Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2 says, You are not to add to the word of God, neither are you to diminish aught from it. And the Bible concludes with that principle in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Don't add to nor take away from the Word of God. Now, the cowboy would pitch a fit if we added the Lord's Supper on Thursday night or if we started doing baby dedications. Hey, they get spoiled rotten enough at home anyway by his grandparents. And, and, but they, they would pitch a fit, right? Oh, you can't have Lord's Supper on Thursday night, and that's right, or Saturday morning, or baby dedications, or solos, or, or if we wrote in, you know, an organ, or if we added a deaconess, or, or if we elevated Easter services and, uh, over any other Sunday, one of the 52 Sundays of the year, they, they would pitch a fit, but, See, when it comes to fellowship, no, no, uh-uh. They, they won't participate in, in Brother's Keeper or, or a fellowship group or a care group or a feast on the 5th where, you know, one church every 5th Sunday, they'll, after services, they'll have a big potluck and they'll sing for an hour and have a devotional and, and spend time getting to know one another, eating and enjoying and, and, and singing. They won't do any of that. Fellowship. Are they not diminishing aught from the Word of God? 
I contend that they are. They're cutting themselves off from a lot of wonderful relationships that that could enrich their lives. And and, and Nelson, he, he finally, you know, Alexander Ball became one of his closest friends. But his unrighteous judgment, unrighteous judgment for 16 years, relationship that he could have have enjoyed we need to be careful of first impressions and we need to spend time in fellowship getting to know one another and then about this same time there was an admiral by the name of robert calder who served he was commander of the fleet off of off of Cadiz, and he was block- blockading the French port of Finestri. He served aboard the 98-gun Princess of Wales, and he engaged the French fleet, 20 ships versus 18 or so ships. It was a fairly even battle, and he, he, he battled 20, a, a combined fleet of the French and, and, the, and the Spanish, 20, 20 ship of the line, and he managed to capture two ships before before night intervened. Now, Calder was known as being honorable and being personable and being charming, but he didn't have the, the killer instinct that was needed to, to press home the victory. He was no Nelson or Howe or Rodney or Hawk. And he was more concerned with securing his two Spanish prizes that would, would in, in, enrich him. In the morning, the Spanish and the French, they were willing to renew the fight, but not Calder. He broke off the fight, and he sent a dispatch to London claiming a a victory. But the newspapers in England were full of contempt for his lack of fighting spirit, and as they said, for his ridiculous interest in, in preserving his little Spanish prizes. But Lord Howe, in the Admiralty, He said in his instructions, he made it unequivocally clear, any man who is not willing to press home, press the fight, who's not willing to do his duty and engage the enemy is not worthy of his post and should surrender it to a man who is willing to press the fight and engage the enemy and do his utmost to win the victory. Later, Calder called for a court-martial, which was a mistake. And he was found guilty in that court-martial. He said, a court-martial will clear my name. And it was said the findings of the court-martial were, he's not guilty of treason, and he's not guilty of disloyalty, but he is guilty of failing to do his utmost to bring the enemy to battle. He is guilty of failing to do his duty, to do his utmost in doing his duty. Well, I can't think of a what is our duty. I can't think of a better passage as children of God. Then Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But what is, what is your duty? What does he require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, 
to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Notice here, it says, this is not the Lord's wish for you, or it's not his desire for you. It's not, this is really something that I wish you would consider doing. It says, no, this is the Lord's requirement of you. This is his, this is your duty to do, to love him, to serve him, to walk in his ways, to serve him with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul. And then Jeremiah chapter 48 and, and, verse, and verse number 10 says, Cursed is the man who doeth the work of the Lord with slackness. And that was exactly what Edward Calder was found guilty of, was doing his duty with slackness. And another other version say of, Je- of Jeremiah 48, 10, Cursed is the man who doeth the work of the Lord negligently, without one's whole heart, or half-heartedly, or, or lacks in doing the Lord's business. And then there are passages like Romans chapter 12 and, and verse number 9, where Paul says we're not to be slothful in business, not to go about the Lord's business half-heartedly, but we're to be fervent in spirit. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and and, and verse number 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. And then the companion passage to that is found in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Give it your best. God expects our best. There is a song that we sing back home. I don't know if you sing it here, but the name of the song is Give of Your Best to the Master. Your very best. And then, in conclusion, in contrast, there is a man, an admiral, a little bit earlier, a little bit older than than Nelson and Calder and Ball, still alive, but somewhat older. He was known as the terrifying Admiral Boscawan. And he was nicknamed Old Dreadnought after one of the ships that he served on. The men thought that was a befitting nickname for him, Dreadnought. But he was known as the terrifying Admiral Boscawan. One night, as a young man, a young captain, 31 years of age, he was serving on the sixth-rate ship, Her Majesty's ship, the Shoreham. It only had 20 guns. He was woken in the middle of the night with two large French frigates bearing down on him. He was woken by the officer of the watch, and he was asked what to do. What are we going to do? We've got two large French men of war bearing down on us and, 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 and we're horribly outgunned and, and this officer was spreading fear and discouragement among the rest of the crew. And, and I, I, can, I wish I could picture this. I wish I had PowerPoint right now and, and to show here is Boscawin. He, he is standing 
He's standing on the deck of his ship in, in his nightshirt. And he says, in his nightcap, and the, he answers the, the master's mate who's saying, what are we going to do? And, and Boscovin says, do, do. And he uses an oath. And I'm not going to use an oath. I don't use oaths. The Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the edifying uh, of, of the saints, I do not condone cursing or swearing. It's something that ought to be reproved, rebuked, and corrected. Second Timothy three, sixteen. But I, I like his spirit. He used an oath. He used the D word here. You know the old sailors how they talk like sailors sometimes. But he said, "Do, do. We're gonna use the D word and fight them." Now, I don't approve of using bad language, but I like that spirit. I like the spirit. Y'all just simmer down. We're not going to panic. We're not going to throw in the towel. We're not going to surrender. We're going to fight. I think one of the brothers asked me tonight at 5 o'clock that session, what is the greatest problem in the church today? I think, number one, it's the lack of respect for biblical authority. And then, here's the other one. It's, it's the spirit of defeatism that we find pervading the church today. That's, I see that, again, I, 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 the, the language, we, we don't approve of that. Not at all. But nor do I care for the pervading sense of hopelessness and, and, and defeatism that's making its way and making inroads into the church. I know. It's easy to get discouraged. We look back to 1960, 1965, when the God is Dead movement arrived here from German theologians and philosophers, Frederick Nietzsche. Remember the God is Dead movement? It appeared, it manifested itself on the cover of Time magazine. Is God dead? Essentially, the answer to the question was inside the magazine, yes, God is dead. And what followed hard on its, on its heels of the God is dead movement was the hippie culture. If God is dead, anything goes. Free love. There's no such thing as free love. Real love requires commitment. But there you, you have the hippie movement and the drugs and the lasciviousness and the fornication and the breakdown of the home and all the moral depravity and the sin. And then that comes, you know, the outlawing of school prayer in 1963. The Supreme Court declares Bible reading to be unconstitutional in 1968. 
and, you know, and sexual freedom is more important than human life as the Supreme Court rules in favor in, in Roe versus Wade. They set themselves up as little gods. We will determine who lives and who dies. God is no longer God. We will play God. We will determine who lives and, and who dies. And morals are on the decline and the divorce rates are out the roof and fathers are abandoning children. And, and then on June the 26, 2015, we have same-sex marriage. Now it's become, the, 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 it's been legalized as the law of the land and the nuns are growing. That's Gallup poll. What is your religious affiliation? None. Atheism is on the rise. Don't careism is on the rise. And now we have this thing, transgenderism. And, and we think, well, you know, the church, the church is still a, a stronghold for everything that's pure and good and moral and, and wholesome and right. But you know very well that liberalism has made terrible inroads into the church in the last few years. And feel-goodism is in and biblical authority is out. And very few seemingly are asking anymore. Jeremiah 6.16 Asking for the old paths and the good way. And in 1960 the churches of Christ were the fastest growing religious body in the United States. By 2013 it had only grown by 0.023%. By 2014, it had completely flattened out. We weren't losing. We weren't gaining. And then by 2015, we had dipped for the first time to 0 0.05. It's easy to get discouraged. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I know what I'm going to do and I know what I think you're going to do and what all God's children should do. We're going to do what Jesus did when He was on the cross. We're going to keep reaching out to the lost. We're going to keep seeking and saving the lost. Luke 19 and 10. As Jesus reached out to that thief on the cross, He died under the old law. But He was still reaching out to Him. Still trying to save his soul. That's what we're going to do under horrible conditions. Jesus dying on the cross with spikes in his hands and a spike through, through, through his feet and beaten bloody and bruised beyond recognition. I'm still going to do what I came here to do. I'm going to seek and save the lost. What am I going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to gird up the loins of our mind and we're going to get our attitudes right. 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. What are we going to do? Galatians 6 and verse 2. We're going to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What are we going to do? We're going to do good unto all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. What are we going to do? Romans 12 and verse 10. We're, to, we're going to continue to be kindly affection one to another. What are we going to do? 2 Timothy 1.13 We're going to hold fast the form of sound words to the end. What are we going to do? Matthew 25.35 We're going to keep feeding the hungry. We're going to keep providing clothes for those people that don't have any clothes. And we're going to have compassion on those in prison. And we're going to visit the sick and the shut-in and the lonely. 
And we're going to keep frying big chickens for faithful gospel preachers. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to follow the example of Jesus. Who said we're going to work the works of Him that sent me while it is yet day. John 9, 4. What are we going to do? Luke, Luke, 9, Luke 14, 23. We're going to keep going into the highways and the hedges, into the lanes, and we're going to keep compelling people to come in that His house might be filled. What are we going to do? Mark 16, 15, and 16. We're going to continue to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. What are we going to do? 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12. We're going to fight the good fight of faith. We're going to finish the course. We're going to keep the faith. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. We're going to be faithful till death. Romans chapter 2 and verse 10. We're going to look forward to that crown of righteousness being placed on our brow. 2 Timothy 4 eight. What are we going to do? Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. Having put our hand to the plow, we will not let go. We will not look back. As together we stand and as we sing.